Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. All right, it's, it's always good to be back. <sighs> um, you know, when I, when I first, uh, when Matt broached me, uh, emailed me and offered me the opportunity to, to preach here, I asked him, I'd be preaching in December, I said, do I need to um, preach a, should I preach a Christmas sermon? And he was like, uh, you don't have to. But if you don't, you'll be fighting a lot of stage decoration. <laughs> and, and I kind of agreed with him. So um, anyway, as we dive in, let's, let's open up in prayer and then we'll get started. Fathers, we open up your word. I, I'm grateful for the worship we've already been able to participate in. Thank you for the truths that, um, that you were pleased with us to dwell as, as a man. That we celebrate the time when you, your son became incarnate that he was Emmanuel, he was God with us, that we didn't deserve him, that we, we didn't deserve his grace or his mercy, and yet you love us so much that you sent your son. As we contemplate these truths, I pray that we would open our minds, open our hearts, that we'd be willing and eager and expectant to hear from you, the God who speaks. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, you know, as I, as I was contemplating, the reason why I asked Matt this question I did was because you know, sometimes we as the church, uh, we're kind of nervous about, about being bold in, our, in declaring our truths of, of Christmas. You know, Christmas gets start celebrating in our society so early these days, right? What was the earliest you saw Christmas decorations and stuff this year? August. That's, that sounds terrible. Yeah. So, um, although I do like to, the whole Christmas in July thing where you sort of think about Christmas because it helps me think of cold when it's like super hot. But yeah, like for me, it was around October, like things after Halloween, the day after Halloween, we just sort of skipped over Thanksgiving and there was Christmas stuff up. And so we as a culture go into Christmas decoration and season overload. And by the time we get to actual Christmas season, kind of, a lot of us are kind of tired of it. And by this time, also, Christians start chiming in, Jesus is the reason for the season, uh, keep Christ in Christmas. And then but frequently we follow the same pattern just like the world. And one of the hard things to do is even as believers to remind ourselves why we actually cordon off this time as special and what we're supposed to do during it. So much of our celebration follows exactly the pattern of a world that basically wants us to use this opportunity uh, to spend as much as we can before the close of a tax year. And so as we begin, realize that... Um, Realize what this season is for. Realize what Christmas is supposed to be about. And I think you can start by realizing a couple of things. One, that Christmas is a holiday. Okay, it's not vacation. Vacation is um, simply a chance to not be at work, to be at home. Um, and a holiday is that, but it's so much more than that. A holiday is a holy day. In fact, we've even co-opted the term in our society to just be synonymous with vacation. But a holiday is a holy day. It's a time for us to stop what we're doing and to reorient our lives around the truths that we claim to hold dear. It's actually the perfect spiritual manifestation of what I learned in my time in Austin as the primary thing that most people who work with computers do for technical support. I was told, and it's confirmed by a lot of people and in my own experience, that the single best thing you can do when you're having a problem with a computer is turn it off and turn it back on. It's like 90%. I'm having my, my computer's broken. I'm like, 
Boom. Boom. There you go. Problem solved. And the reason why rebooting works is because over time, when a machine runs for long enough, all those bugs just kind of accrue, and it's good to stop it and start it over from the beginning. And holy days provide us with that opportunity. Most people don't wake up and decide, you know what? The Christian view of the world is not hacking it today. I think I'm going to absorb a culture's misguided notions of what is valuable and live my life that way. Nobody wakes up and makes this statement. What they do is they just continually head in the direction that they were going. Like a, like a ski boat with the power off. It's going in the direction that it's supposed to go in, and it just keeps drifting unless something else happens. Holidays provide us an opportunity to reboot. In fact, that's what Sunday is for. Christians traditionally gather once a week on a Sunday to celebrate a holy day where we remember the truths that bind us together as Christians, the death and resurrection of Christ. Every Sunday is supposed to be a little Easter, a little chance for us to remember those truths and to reorient our lives around that and then to keep going. And so we need them or we'll, we're likely to drift away from what we, what we claim to believe. And these larger holidays are chances to think about larger, more significant events in a grand way, specifically Christmas, uh, to talk about uh, what it really means to contemplate why God sent his son, that God was incarnate. What are the truths that are loaded into this historical event? So start by realizing Christmas is a holiday first. And think about ways you can make Christmas primarily about that. Second, remember that Christmas is not the most important holiday. This is something that, that where Christians kind of drift with the culture in this respect. Christmas is important, but for Christians, the most important holiday is Easter. Don't, don't get me wrong. Without, the, without Bethlehem and the incarnation, you don't have the cross. But we are Christians. We worship on a Sunday. We celebrate a God who became man, who died for our sins, and he rose again. The cross and the empty tomb are the greatest celebrations as Christians. But see, a culture finds that harder to explain. A cute little baby in a manger at the end of a tax year is a good reason to get you to spend your money. But a man on a cross is tough to explain, and an empty tomb is even harder. And so realize, though, that that is supposed to be the center of gravity for, for us as believers. And maybe this year, contemplate all of the energy and effort that you put into celebrating Christmas. Find ways of putting that same energy and effort into celebrating Easter. Find ways to make that the center, the central holiday celebration. And then maybe find small ways of resisting the cultural pull, the cultural pull to think of Christmas as something other than what it is. Just look at your life and analyze it and ask yourself, what are ways in which I can build into my life remembrances of the deep truths of what are represented? One of the, one of the things I did was I just started listing all of the Christmas stories, the things that go around like, like Zacharias and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, uh, the wise men, and I asked myself, what can I learn? What do I need to remember? What truths does this teach? And how can I live my life around these truths? Maybe force yourself out of 
the cultural calendar for celebrating Christmas. Because of uh, because a secular world wants to use Christmas as a chance for you to spend your money at the end of a tax year, it wants you to be done before New Year. But traditionally, Advent goes up to Christmas, and then the 12 days of Christmas start at Christmas and run through Epiphany, the date that traditionally we celebrate the, the coming of the wise men. Resist the urge to put your Christmas stuff away on December 26th. I know it's been up for like two months already, right? And you do the math, and it's been like, that's, that's 25% of the year already. What's going on? But celebrate it longer. Celebrate it different. And I don't know if this is because I'm being intentional or because I'm lazy, but we don't, uh, we don't put our Christmas tree away till January 6th. We try to keep keeping these truths in before our mind. In fact, this last year, we kept our nativity scene up all year round. I knew where the boxes were, so it wasn't because I had forgotten about it, but it's, it serves as a constant reminder that God is with us. Find ways of doing it. Find ways of, of reorienting your Christmas celebration around the truths that we're, that we're supposed to be focused on and reorient your life in this way. And that's kind of what I want to do today. I want to focus on this one key truth, and it has to do with um, handling how we engage the unknown. See, one of the ways in which Christmas can be a stressful time on us is we feel this intense pressure to have the perfect Christmas. We have all, we're told that here are the things you must have, a family under a tree, a Christmas, and we got a wreath and some mistletoe, and here's the meal, and here are all the things we have to do. In fact, if you listen to our music and watch our movies, all the Christmas holiday specials, they center around somebody ruining Christmas, right? You ruined Christmas. It's, it's one group of people who has all these expectations about what Christmas is supposed to be, and something happens, and it doesn't work that way, and everybody's mad about it. But what's weird about Christmas, the original Christmas story, is that's exactly what Christmas is supposed to be. It's about God taking the plans you thought you had made and radically overturning them. And so what I would like to do over the next two weeks, this week and next week, yes, you have to listen to me next week, is, is um, preach a series called Having an Unexpected Christmas. To look at what it means to talk about a God who looks at all our perfect plans and wants to overturn them in a radically awesome way. So this week I want to look at um, the core story at the, at the center of our Christmas story is Mary's unexpected Christmas. So let's look at that right now. It's Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke's biography of Jesus, he recounts at the very beginning um, this encounter that Mary had. And probably Luke tells us that he researched everything thoroughly. And so probably he interviewed Mary and got these stories directly from her. We, we find out later in Luke's account that it says Mary, Mary stored up and pondered and treasured all these things in her heart. So probably he got these right from Mary. So here's how Mary's unexpected Christmas starts. It starts with an unexpected visitor. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in, the sixth month of the, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Then the, 
So um, the scene is set. Mary is a young woman who is set to be married uh, to this man named Joseph. Now, it should, it's important to know the age. Roughly, she's probably, in the ancient world, women typically married between the ages of like late teens, early 20s, 18 to 22. Men typically waited a little bit longer to the, where they could actually had an established career and could support a family. So women normally married early 20s, late teens. Uh, men typically married late 20s, early 30s. And she is betrothed to a man named Joseph. And again, in antiquity, this betrothal process, we've turned engagement into a, like a long process with all these weird events and its own, its own cottage industry of all these rites and showers and things that have to be performed. It's exhausting. Um, and in antiquity, a betrothal was basically, the, the only difference between an engagement and a marriage was an engagement began when you agreed to get married and then the engagement period was simply the guy going, okay, let me go get everything ready. I'll be back. And it was just simply the amount of time it took necessary to set up a household. But engagements were so serious and so important that it required something more like a divorce to break it. It wasn't just something you give the ring back and you move on. It was a very deep and serious thing. And she is betrothed to this man. They're not married, but it's in a legal sense, it's, it's very serious commitment. And she's sitting there at the coffee table, going through brides' magazines and, and looking on Pinterest for various things that she can do. And all of a sudden, an angel walks in. It says, an angel came to her. And this is one of those scenes I would love to see acted out because I want to know what it looked like. Did he knock? Did he walk in? Did he appear? Did, did he get her attention first? Like, <clears throat> Mary. Like, was, was her back to the door? I don't, like, I don't know. But... She says, he says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And she's confused by this. A guest shows up in the midst of a reality that she was planning for herself and tells her she's in, the, she's in for something that she hadn't even thought to conceive. So an unexpected visitor gives her an unexpected plan. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall, you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He says, you have this plan, let me tell you a bigger plan, a plan that you haven't even thought to, to consider, that I am going to take your little world and expand it in a way you had never thought to, to imagine. And admittedly, uh, she's confused, and she's bewildered, and she understands the key problems with her plan. She is going to um, have a child, not by her husband, and that's going to cause undue problems and complications and legal issues and things like that, maybe scorn and embarrassment. She is being invited, though, to not just be the wife to Joseph. She's being invited to be the mother of the Messiah, this grand, amazing, powerful plan. And she's confused. She's like, you do understand the issues, right? You do understand that I'm not actually married and I'm not actually able to have a baby. It's one of the cool things about what Mary does is she reveals 
that even the ancients were skeptical of miracles. Sometimes Christians are, are sometimes we're called soft-headed for believing in what could, couldn't possibly happen. Like miracles can't happen, and we treat it like this is a scientific discovery of the modern age, that because we have iPhones and microwaves, that somehow we're smarter than the ancients. The ancients knew where babies came from, and, they, and Mary was just as confused, okay? She was like, you do understand the hurdles, okay? This is going to be, um, there are going to be some complications here. It was miraculous to them too. Sometimes we think that miraculous is just something that smart people with technology would, would be amazed at. No, the miraculous is a circumvention of nature by the miraculous power of God. And it was uncommon for them and it caught them off guard too. They didn't think it was possible either. Sometimes we engage in what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, and we need to just get over it. Um, an unexpected visitor invites her to join an unexpected plan and gives her an unexpected proof. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. She who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This unexpected proof, it's so cool. He doesn't say, now just sit around and wait and see in a couple of days something's going to happen. What he says is, and it's already happening now. God is doing the impossible and you are invited to get involved. Let me show you someplace else that you can look where God is already doing the unthinkable. That, that relative you have, the one that everybody thought was too old to have a baby, She's pregnant. Not only is she pregnant, she's six months pregnant. She's almost due. God is doing the impossible. Go watch and see, and then go realize that he can do it here too. It's an exciting thing. And as I look at Mary's story, I, I say, um, what can I learn from this? What is it that, what comfort or encouragement or challenge or conviction does this give to me? And what I find in this, I find something that Mary does I'm rather comforting. I find in Mary helpful tips on dealing with the unexpected. Mary shows me how to handle when God overturns my plans. See, so many times we like to live in a world where we insulate ourselves from all possible outcomes and we're going to have our own perfect reality be made manifest and, and, and accomplished. And when those things start falling apart, we become disgruntled or angry or frustrated or sad and we don't know what to do. But that is precisely the business God is in. If the incarnation and if Christmas means nothing else, it means that we serve a God who intervenes in our lives, who invades our world, and who overturns our plans. And he does so because he is a good and loving God who, has a, and who, who out of his love for you and out of his desire to fulfill his plan, is going to um, accomplish, accomplish the unthinkable in our midst. So what does Mary do? that helps me deal with God's changing plan in our life. Well, Mary does four things. There are four different things she does in the course of this passage that I think are emblematic of the ways a Christian is supposed to respond to these changes in plans. First, when the angel comes in, uh, he, he says, Hail Mary, your um, greetings favored one. The Lord is with you. And she is confused. Mary reminds me that it's okay to be confused. So many times when our plans get overturned, we feel like all God wants us to do is blindly turn our mind off, turn our emotions off, and just get in line and blindly follow. No, 
Mary is confused. There's something is happening in her midst, and she is bewildered by it. It is okay to be confused. And the reason why it's okay to be confused is because when we are confused, when we are confused, we get to acknowledge our own smallness compared to God. We realize that we don't know and God does know. We realize that, that our world isn't what we thought it was and actually we're not in all that much control anyway. Writer of Proverbs says, um, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. When you are confused, it reveals that you're finding that your own understanding is not supporting you anymore. It's okay. Paul has this wonderful phrase in 2 Corinthians. He says that sometimes he felt perplexed but not despairing. God moves us into times of confusion and perplexity so that he can show us that we're awfully small and not as big as we think we are and that we have so much reason to cheerfully depend upon this God who so orchestrates the world. It's okay to be confused. Second thing that Mary does, it says that she was pondering these things in her heart. It's weird. The Bible doesn't tell us the time that this... Um, the, the time that all this meeting occurred. But it says, it says that she was, she was perplexed by this greeting and she kept, um, she kept pondering what kind of salutation this could have been. It doesn't say she just single-handedly, for a single time, said that she was perplexed. It says she kept pondering. She kept wrestling. She kept chewing on it. Mary shows me that it's okay to wrestle with it. When God sends the, the, sends the unexpected your way, it's okay to wrestle with it. In fact, the whole Bible is kind of a testimony to God putting us in places where we have to wrestle with the life he calls us to. There's the life that we have, and there's the life that he has for us. And he's going to move us from one to the other, and that process of moving is a wrestling move. Now, why is it okay to wrestle? Because when we wrestle, God can soften our hearts and change them. When we wrestle, the things that are causing us to wrestle are all of those fears and frustrations, plans and things like that, that God is actually trying to, to bring up so that he can get out. He's trying to expose us and show us for who we really are, not so he can bully us, but so he can love us. The whole Bible is a testimony to people who wrestled with God. I think about at the very beginning, you get, you get Jacob wrestling with, with God in Genesis, and Jacob is wrestling with, the, with an angel of the Lord and, and he's asking God for a blessing and the angel will not bless him until he says, tell me your name. See, Jason, Jacob had lied about who he was before. God, in the midst of wrestling, made him admit who he was. In the midst of wrestling with the changes in, our, in, in, in plans, God is able to make us, show us, reveal to us those fears so that his perfect love can cast out those fears. Think of the book of Psalms. How many Psalms start off with, um, oh Lord, I am so worried about this. In fact, the whole book of Psalms is a testimony of what you can say to God, that God is strong enough, he can take it. And so many Psalms start off with, I thought this was happening and now I'm worried and why are people seeking my life? And oh God, where are you? And they always end with, but God, you're faithful and I'm going to trust. The whole book of Job is, is simply a story about a man who wrestles with God. He wants to understand why what's happened to him has happened to him. And so he spends the whole time, the whole book, wrestling, trying to find answers. It is okay to wrestle. 
So many times we think that, that, if we, um, that if we wrestle with it, somehow we're doubting God or being disobedient. Wrestling with something isn't disobedience. Wrestling with it is exactly what God is trying to do so that he can shape us and mold us into the kinds of people he desires us to be. So not only is it okay to be confused, it's okay to wrestle. It's actually okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions. See, after the plan gets revealed, Mary says, interesting plan, here are my issues. And she raises her questions uh, to the angel, and the angel answers them. So many times in church, we are afraid of asking questions or we shut down questions. So many times we feel like we're supposed to check our mind at the door and when something's happened, we're supposed to slavishly follow. Most people sit in churches with questions they want answers to and they're afraid that what's gonna be told to them is just have faith, which is Christian speak for get over it. Stop asking those kinds of questions. It is okay to ask questions. And the reason why it's okay to ask questions is because when you ask questions, you give God a chance to answer. You know, uh, sometimes the answers aren't what we expect. The whole book of Job is this massive question about why did this happen to me? God, why do you allow any of this to happen? And Job doesn't get the answer that he thought he would get. He doesn't get a point-by-point -point rebuttal of all the things that, that, that Job complained about. What he gets is God showing up and saying, I am God, is this enough? God shows up and invites him to be in a relationship with him, shows him his grandeur and asks him to submit and to trust. When we ask questions, we give God a chance to answer. These three first points are actually a very good summary of this thing the Bible talks about called seeking. If I just stopped the first three points right there, I could, I could easily say um, it is, um, that is a good uh, way to think about seeking God. The Bible talks about you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. What does it mean to seek God? It doesn't just mean to... Like, where do I go and look for him? And what does it mean? Well, it means to start with where, the, where are those things you are confused about? What are those things that you are wrestling with? What are those questions you have? Now go look for answers and realize that there is a living and personal God who is trying to meet you. So many times we boil Christianity down to, we make the Bible uh, like a Bible answer book, like a God answer book. We make, we make Jesus a historical figure. We make God a theological concept. And when we have problems, we think the Bible is just sort of the religious version of Google. What does the Bible have to say about? And we forget that we serve a living, personal God who is actively involved in his world and desires to speak to you. Voice your questions to God and see if he doesn't answer. See how he answers through the scriptures, through his church, through his spirit as he is powerfully present in our midst. So many times we think that um, getting to heaven means that God's going to check our church attendance and make us pass a theology exam. And God's saying, I desire you to be in relationship with me. And the way you do is by seeking me. And the way you seek me is by starting with those things that confuse you seriously, honestly wrestle with them and then go look for answers. I guarantee you'll start to find them. 
And when you do, as you start to find them, as you start to find the God who gives those answers, the last thing is just as important. The last thing that Mary does in the midst of her confusion. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to wrestle with, with problems. It's okay to ask questions. It's important to surrender. It's important to surrender. One of the most amazing phrases in all of Scripture, one of the things that makes Mary um, a, a great role model for all believers is the thing that she says to the angel after she hears the plan and gets the beginning of the answers to her questions. Something that, that is, is so unbelievably difficult for most of us to say and the single thing that God wants all of us to say to him. Verse 38, Behold the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. She doesn't have the whole picture, but she radically submits to God's plan. She says, I'm your servant. I'm your slave. May it happen to me the way you say, not the way I say. This picture of surrender is something that is so difficult to do, but it's radically at the core of everything it means to be a believer. God is calling all of us to be in relationship to him to submit to his plan. His, he is a big God. He is a loving God. He is a strong God. And he wants us to surrender our little plans and our small territories to his goodness and his love. Where are you today? What little kingdoms are you trying to hold on to? What problems are you wrestling with? Where is this hitting you today? What are the things that are leaving you confused and bewildered? What are the things that you are wrestling with? What questions do you have? Do you have the ability, the willingness, the desire to finally lay them at God's feet and say, I surrender them to you. You know better than me. See, if you don't come to God with that surrender, your, your confusion is going to turn to... Um, resignation. Ah, whatever. You're just going to give up. When, when life doesn't turn out the way you want, you're going to give up. Your wrestling with it is going to turn into fighting. You're going to fight with God because he's not making the world come out the way you thought, and you're going to insist upon it, and your questions are going to turn into skepticism. Christianity requires us. It asks us. It begs us to kneel to give God all the broken pieces of the life that we are trying to construct for ourselves and to see what God can do with a life wholly surrendered to him. So this Christmas, look for ways that God is trying to invade your life to break up this closed, neat reality you've constructed for yourself. Be willing to have an unexpected Christmas. Be eager for the opportunities you can to surrender to God's plan, not your own. Even if, it, even if it's that unexpected guest that might show up, that unexpected opportunity to serve, that unexpected change in the plans that you have constructed, let this be a small window into and beginning starting point for the fact that we can reorient our lives around a God who is intervening. When it all looks hopeless, when it all looks in despair, when it looks like nothing good can happen, God came near. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the fact that in the midst of all of our hopelessness and frustration, even in the midst of all of the world building we try to do in our own life, where we try to make the world according to our image, plans that ultimately fall apart. Thank you for the fact that, that you love us so much that when all seemed hopeless and lost, you made a way for us to be the people you desire us to be, that your plan wasn't thwarted by our sin or by our arrogance. Thank you that you invade. Thank you that you intervene. Thank you that you are involved in your creation. As we seek to deal with that, as we seek to embrace the plans that you have for us, help us, move us from, from our confusion. Help us to wrestle with it so we can know those things about us that need to be fixed, that you're trying to love us out of. Help us to ask the right questions and to hear those answers when you give them. And ultimately, Father, help us to surrender. Give us the mercy we need to lay down our arms and the grace we need to completely surrender our lives to you. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org. 